Hey guys, welcome to Midcast, an interview series featuring dissenting voices the establishment would rather silence. I'm your host, Manar Muhawish. Today, we'll delve into a new revelation that CrowdStrike, the firm behind the accusation that Russia hacked and stole DNC emails, admitted to Congress that it has no direct evidence that Russia actually stole DNC emails and infiltrated their servers. Thanks in part to the global pandemic that has been dominating headlines, this revelation was not picked up by a single corporate media outlet, the same corporate media that worked diligently to convince the American public that Russia interfered in the 2016 elections to help elect Donald Trump. Now, one investigative journalist, though, Aaron Maté, has done an extraordinary job debunking the Russiagate narrative since it began, and he joins us today to discuss this new revelation and much more. He's the host of the show Pushback on the Gray Zone. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk about CrowdStrike, who they are, um, this revelation that you actually revealed, and why we're only now hearing about this. Well, we're only now hearing about this because, as is a habit with Russiagate, bombshell claims are made, and then slowly but surely the countervailing evidence gets revealed later on uh, to undermine it. In this case, it just happened to get revealed nearly three years after the testimony was given. Um, and that's because of some infighting between Democrats and Republicans in Congress. But I think probably because Adam Schiff, the head of the uh, House Intelligence Committee, uh, didn't want to release because this testimony and others was um, very damning for the narrative he helped build for, you know, for three years. Um, so what CrowdStrike is, is it's a cybersecurity firm and it was hired by the DNC to help with a breach of its server uh, that it says it discovered in the spring of 2016. And um, it ended up, uh, CrowdStrike ended up, after an investigation, ended up being the one, the first entity to accuse Russia of uh, hacking the DNC and giving uh, files to, uh, to Russian intelligence cutouts. And so basically CrowdStrike is the, is the source, the first source for the underlying crime that has propelled Russiagate for more than three years. Now, what's interesting about CrowdStrike is that it has some – it has a sketchy track record um, when it accused Russia of conducting a hack inside Ukraine using similar software that it says it identified inside the DNC server. It actually had to retract that allegation. So it doesn't actually have, you know, the most uh, spotless track record. And it has deep partisan ties. Its co-founder is a um, vocal critic of the Russian government. Uh, he is a fellow at the Atlantic Council, which is basically a, an anti-Russia, pro, pro-NATO think tank in Washington, very influential. Um, and its president, Sean Henry, the guy who gave this testimony to Congress, he previously came from the FBI, where he worked very closely with Robert Mueller, who ended up leading the Trump-Russia investigation. And then later on, and actually, and meanwhile, during all this, by the way, Henry was also a national security analyst at MSNBC, the top peddler of Russiagate. That's so, like the main organization that has been peddling this narrative. It is. Yeah, it is. So you have <laughs> you don't exactly have an unbiased right. source here, and it's strange that. You know, the basis for the allegation that Russia hacked the DNC and stole emails was a 
private firm with such, you know, deep partisan ties. And, you know, we know that the FBI never got a fully independent access to the DNC server. There have been all these conflicting claims about that. The DNC and CrowdStrike says that the FBI did get it, but FBI officials have said that they didn't. So even exactly what even happened there is unclear. But just the fact that there's such discrepancy between the claims shows that this was not a clean operation and there was some funny stuff going on. And, you know, I think now we're realizing why, because Sean Henry in his testimony uh, that, again, was delivered in December of 2017, he says on multiple occasions that, you know, these hackers who CrowdStrike alleges are Russian, although I don't see any reason to even accept that claim, but whatever, even if they are, he acknowledges multiple times that CrowdStrike has no evidence that these hackers actually exfiltrated anything from the server, which means take. They they cannot pinpoint when or even whether these hackers actually took the DNC emails off the server. And so if you can't identify when or even whether these emails were taken off the server, how can you so confidently accuse Russia of taking them? Well, I think this brings up a big, uh, good point about how if you repeat something, whether it's true or not, you know, if it's a lie, so many times it's going to end up being believed by the general public. Um, and so can you tell us what evidence the intelligence community has claimed to have um, and how the media played a role? I mean, you, you talk about MSNBC. First person that comes to my mind is like Rachel Maddow, who has been this, you know, the most vocal peddler of this Russiagate um, narrative. How has the media played uh, a role in pushing this? Well, the media has played a vital role. It's basically acted as a propaganda organ for the intelligence officials and Democratic Party elites uh, who benefited from Russiagate and uh, who started it. Um, they've done that for many reasons. It's profitable. You know, MSNBC wasn't doing that great, but it did great because of Russiagate because what they were what they were presenting people was this real life spy thriller that was going to you know as they were advertising it bring down a president who uh, for understandable reasons a lot of people want to see gone and so it was exciting but the problem is it was completely baseless and the way to keep it going was to basically ignore all the countervailing facts it's not as if like russia gate is just shown to be baseless now that was pretty obvious from the start that what was keeping it going was cherry-picked claims, disingenuous language from Mueller and the intelligence officials exactly, behind this, yeah. and and selective leaks, and that was obvious to you know all the skeptics. But the way the media uh, kept it going was basically they ignored anybody who was making criticism and looking at the actual evidence and just presented a false narrative. And you know, people, audiences don't have the time to go fact check everything themselves. So, and this was the overwhelming narrative that was presented. And so that's how they went along with it. And look, you can see that now CrowdStrikes made this admission. It comes out, it's publicly released. The only ones to cover it are, you know, outlets like, uh, like us and Fox news. But Fox news has a, has a partisan interest in, in covering that because, you know, uh, anything that undermines Russiagate and shows it to be the scam that it is will obviously help Trump, which is why, I was, from a partisan point of view, I was so against it from the start because I always thought, like, what could be a bigger gift to Trump 
than to challenge him based on something so stupid and so baseless. Well, and I think that's what's so interesting about this is that if you did challenge this narrative, if you did question this whole Russiagate um, uh, conspiracy, then you would immediately get targeted and attacked as this like Putin minion. But actually what you've done is you've actually showed how this has actually been beneficial to the Trump administration. And how can you explain how that has been beneficial? Well, I can't think of a bigger gift. If you're Trump and his circle, you are overseeing a radical upward transfer of wealth with your tax cuts uh, and your um, and your undoing regulations. You're pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. You're ramping up the danger of uh, nuclear war by pulling out of vital nuclear treaties with Russia. Uh, you're trying to overthrow governments in Venezuela and Iran and Nicaragua and wherever else. And you're, you know, you're 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 trying to gut Obamacare. Um, you're doing all these horrible things. And meanwhile, what is the main focus of your so-called resistance? Right. It's this. It's a, it's a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy theory that you're you conspired with Russia and that Putin has blackmail leverage over you and. Instead of mobilizing people around those issues, your resistance has basically been told to sit on the sidelines and wait for Robert Mueller to do its job because Robert Mueller, this hero, is going to bring Trump down. I mean like that, that was the message of coming from liberal leaders for, you know, for three years. To me, I mean the most symbolic illustration of this is that there were bigger liberal protests to save Jeff Sessions' job than there were to save the Iran nuclear deal or to save the Paris right. Accords or to even save health care or to oppose Trump's tax cuts because there was this concern that if Jeff Sessions was fired, then that would harm Mueller somehow, which is just – it's – you know so here we are literally rallying to protect the, the job security of a racist instead of rallying on issues that actually impact people's lives. And, you know, the, um, the interest for liberal elites is very obvious for them. I mean, it was great for their ratings. It was profitable for them to have this thing, to, to be talking about a spy thriller and collusion instead of real issues, because, you know, that just, that just, it sells more. Um, and it also was a convenient way, I think more importantly for liberal elites to avoid any, any meaningful challenge to their own power and their own privilege, because, the, the lesson of 2016 was that an anti-establishment message wins. I mean, that's what Trump ran on. He painted himself as being someone who was going to drain the swamp. He even spoke out against, you know, uh, military intervention abroad in Syria and Libya. And that was that resonated. So the obvious answer for Democrats was to, well, if Trump won by by falsely presenting himself as being anti-establishment, the obvious answer was to become a genuine anti-establishment party. And they already had the seeds of that with the surge of Bernie Sanders, which was, like Trump, also a threat to their power. So to really learn lessons of 2016 would have meant changing their own policies. And that would have meant you know, uh, hurting their own privilege within the system that gave rise to Trump. So obviously not willing, being willing to do that, they latched on to Russiagate. And all of a sudden, the reason Trump won was because of Russia. And the answer to his to ousting him was – and having somebody prove it. And um, that was disastrous. So what could be a bigger gift to Trump than having his resistance channeled into that? 
And then what could be a bigger additional gift when it all collapses and he's vindicated? And now with this investigation going on into how all this came out, there are legitimate disclosures coming out showing just the malfeasance involved in generating Russiagate to begin with. And that will help Trump with his reelection campaign because he'll be able to show, look what these people did to try to bring me down and subvert the will of the voters. And he can use it as an excuse. Well, the reason I wasn't able to do this was because these uh, these deep state people and Democrats were trying to bring me down. And that will resonate with people because there, there, wit, there was genuine intelligence officials' misconduct in starting Russiagate and keeping it going for more than three years. I mean, that was just amazing what you just described. I mean, that, that explains um, how this has been pushed and, and used as a distraction from the issues that we, the media should be talking about. Um, and speaking of a cover-up, um, previously sealed FBI documents um, indicate actually a close co- close contacts between Israel and the Trump campaign, and that the mother mm-hmm. investigation found evidence of actually Israeli involvement, but largely redacted it. What do we know about Israeli interference in U.S. elections, and how has it not been? Uh, and how has it not received media coverage? Well, yeah, the only documented case of collusion between Trump and a foreign power around the election was with Israel. We um, learned this, Michael Flynn, where when Flynn talked to the FBI, they asked him about his conversations with the Russian ambassador, Ambassador Sergei Kislyak. And the first conversation that Flynn had with Kislyak was not about Russia or about Russia sanctions, which has gotten all the attention. It was about the Trump administration was trying to undermine a vote at the UN Security Council that was going to criticize Israeli Israeli settlement building. And for the first time, Obama was not going to block it on his way out the door. The Obama administration decided to abstain on the measure. And so the Israeli government asked the Trump camp to sabotage the vote, to try to get someone else to vote against it, to veto it. So that's what Flynn did. Flynn called the Russian ambassador and asked uh, Russia on the Trump team's behalf whether they would do that. And they tried to do this with other countries as well. They actually worked very hard. It was their top priority, according to the, according to the Wall Street Journal. And this was done based on a personal request from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And it's actually pretty serious. You're trying to undermine the official policy of the outgoing U.S. government at the world's highest international body, the UN Security Council. But it's elicited no outrage because, unfortunately, collusion with Israel is bipartisan. Uh, So even though Obama was allowing this vote, with that exception, Democrats generally uh, are in lockstep with with Trump and the Republicans when it comes to Israel, as exemplified by the fact that you had um, many Democrats even opposing Obama at the time when he was going to let that vote pass. And so this revelation of collusion between Trump and a foreign power has elicited a collective yawn. And it just shows how hypocritical and absurd all this, you know, hyperventilating about foreign interference and collusion is because you see no such uh, outrage when that collusion is with a government that Democrats are in lockstep with, even if it means trying to undermine official U.S. policy. And we, we recently got more documents in the Roger Stone case it showed that he was in contact with some Israelis who were promising uh, or, or who were offering help to the Trump administration, although the full nature of uh, to the Trump campaign, although the full extent of that, at least I'm not fully familiar with it yet. I'm, I'm not sure if it's been fully redacted, but 
it does just show that if there, yes, there was collusion, but it wasn't between Trump and Russia. It was between Trump and Israel. Right, with Israel. And I want to talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, a bit of a raspy voice today. I want to talk about the, the Mueller report um, that was released last year, um, since that is kind of the, the main report that Democrats and people like Rachel Maddow and the establishment liberal you know, left continue to cite as their evidence, which clearly you're saying like that's actually pointing to the opposite direction. Um, you wrote in The Nation, for more than two years, leading U.S. political and media voices promoted a narrative that Donald Trump conspired with or was compromised by the Kremlin, and that special counsel Robert Mueller uh, would prove it. In the process, they overlooked countervailing um, evidence and diverted anti-Trump energies into fervent speculation and prolonged anticipation. So long as Mueller was on the case, it was possible to believe that the walls are closing in on the traitor puppet asset in the White House. The long-awaited completion of Mueller's probe and the release of his redacted report reveals this narrative and the expectations it fueled to be unfounded, which is, you know, what I'm saying. So what did this probe find and how did the media uh, react to uh, its findings? Well, it found absolutely nothing. Uh, it, but, you know, for all this talk about you know illicit Trump Russia contacts, there were all these leaks from intelligence officials that were then, you know, regurgitated um, uh, in in media uh, and you know peddled without any skepticism whatsoever about illicit Trump Russia contacts, senior Russian intelligence officials having talks with Trump officials. There was this giant pic- uh, picture of, of conspiracy, even though. When all the indictments came out over the course of you know more than two years, uh, none of them ever showed anything of the sort. And when Mueller's report finally came out, it gave us the final answer. For all the the attempts to portray links and ties between Trump and Russia, there's this figure people always say about more than 100 links and connections between Trump and Russia. It's all basically it's it's all um, it's all propaganda. It's actually nothing. The Mueller could only find only a couple instances of anybody actually acting on behalf of the Kremlin, actually interacting with anybody actually interacting on behalf of the Trump campaign. Because, you know, the, the most fundamental aspect of a conspiracy is to have contact between the two sides. If you can't prove that these two sides have even been in touch, it's hard to show that there's any kind of conspiracy. And you see that in the report, the only instances of anybody actually acting on behalf of the Trump campaign and the Kremlin interacting comes when the Russian ambassador speaks to some Trump people, which happens during a campaign. And it and uh, another instance where a press assistant in the Kremlin spokesperson's office calls back Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer, and says, sorry, we can't help you build a Trump Tower in Moscow. But if you want to come to this conference we're having later on this year, like an economic conference, you're, you're welcome to come. We can get you an invite. That's the extent of it. But yet there was all this disingenuous effort put into showing all these links and ties between Trump and Russia. And it was just basically a giant smokescreen. It was done to try to suggest that there's some sort of illicit relationship. But there was none because the whole thing was was completely baseless. And that's why none of the indictments showed any uh, collusion between anybody actually acting on behalf of Russia and Trump. There was all just this uh, innuendo trying to suggest there might be something there. And you get that. In case after case after case, and I was pointing this out the entire time, and so were others, but because so many journalists chose to 
act as propaganda vehicles for Russiagate instead of doing their job. But the public got just a radically different picture. So where the hell have all these like Facebook fact checkers been this entire time? <laughs> They've been so busy targeting independent media and alternative journalists. Um, you know, have they done anything to fact check the mainstream media coverage of Russiagate? Well, well, that's the whole point. You know, all these um, organizations and, uh, you know, like things like uh, the Alliance for Securing Democracy and all these projects that are now, you know, being trotted out in the name of fact checking and fighting misinformation are themselves vehicles for misinformation. They're the ones, right, right. Yeah, they're the ones. And, and their function is to, in the service of American elites, to basically target anybody who dissents from the establishment consensus and smear them as, you know, acting on behalf of Russia or Iran or whatever else the, uh, the official enemy of the day is. I mean, I think now with China being demonized, we're going to see a lot more of this being deployed against China and anybody accused of deviating from the establishment will be accused of being a Chinese bot. That's just, right. that's what the whole function of all this is. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just blatant. And that's why, look, this was used against everybody, including Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders went along with the Russiagate narrative. He didn't challenge it. He didn't accurately see it as, in fact, not just a fake way to resist Trump, but also a way to resist his rise, to avoid becoming the party for, – for Democratic elites to avoid becoming the party of Bernie Sanders. Um, because, you know, again, as I talked about earlier, like if Democratic elites had really learned the lessons of 2016 – they would have embraced the genuine anti-establishment message, and that was embodied by Bernie Sanders and his movement. So instead, you know, that's why on the eve of the Nevada caucuses, Bernie Sanders, you know, leading in the polls, he got Russia-gated, and there was this release of the story claiming that Russia, uh, claiming that U.S. intelligence officials had, had, you know, have concluded that Russia now intends to help Bernie Sanders. So this I, is the I point of all that, this. Yeah. So this is the point of all this stuff. It's to it's not to fight misinformation. It's to spread misinformation uh, that drums up uh, tensions with Russia, uh, which is profitable for the people who fund all this stuff, including the weapons industry, and to you know taint dissent and paint anybody who deviates from the establishment as just simply a, a puppet or agent of Russia or other official enemies. Well, when you have organizations like the Atlantic Council, which is you know obviously funded by NATO, uh, funded by weapons manufacturers. Um, pushing this kind of, they're the ones who are acting as the arbitrators of what's true and what's false online. All they're going to do, as you said, is, you know, push this kind of narrative um, and attack dissent and attack anything that's going to be an alternative to that. So where does Hillary Clinton stand in all of this? Well, Hillary Clinton's circle has just huge responsibility for this. Uh, we know from the book Shattered, which is like the definitive account of the Hillary campaign, that within hours after her loss to Trump, that the Hillary um, people, that you know, Hillary and her team met, and they decided that the election was not on the up and up, and that they were going to basically blame James, Co uh, James Comey and Russia. And so they put this into motion, and the media completely fell in line. And they kept going and going and going with this. And they, if Trump is reelected in 2020, I think they have primary responsibility because what they have basically shown us is that it was more important for them to avoid accepting responsibility for their failures in 2016 
and more important for them to keep their privileged positions inside the Democratic Party and U.S. system than it was to meaningfully challenge Trump because instead of forming a, you know, a movement you know, based on policies and issues that, that help people, the Clinton people via, MS, via MSNBC and CNN and the Washington Post and the New York Times kept the Russia thing front and center. And uh, they handed Trump a big gift, and I just hope it's not enough to hand him the gift of re-election in 2020. But I think, you know, it's not hard to foresee given how – just how stupid this whole thing was, but yet how much attention and time it consumes. So I think that the Clinton people have huge responsibility in all of this. Well, that leads me to what I was going to ask you next um, and, and talk about is – you know, the real scandal, in my opinion, and which you've been alluding to, is how this entire Russiagate narrative has affected our democratic system and our First Amendment in terms of um, elections and journalism. Um, talk to me about the damage it's done and how can we reverse this, if possible? Well, you know, Russiagate is entirely a projection. Everything that its uh, pro- proponents accuse Russia of they're in fact guilty of themselves. So look at, for example, the, this thing about trying to undermine our democracy. It's always what could be a, right? right? It's always so. What could be a bigger threat to our democracy and sort of sowing discord than spending over three years claiming that the president is a Russian agent and that Russia, via you know Facebook memes and hacked emails, has the ability to destroy our democracy? I mean, that's all we've heard from liberal pundits for over three years that Russia right. is destroying. You know, there's just this massive new piece in the Atlantic magazine. And it's called um, something like Putin's goal is to bring down democracy. And <laughs> it's just like it's all about how Putin is somehow going to end democracy as we know it. And uh, and it's so it's been a constant campaign of misinformation and fear mongering, exactly what Russia is supposed supposedly accused of doing. And of course, you know, even if we accept on, just for a second that everything Russia is accused of is true. The idea that any of it could, you know, uh, change people's votes or threaten democracy is just a joke. I mean, if you look at the the, the Russian social media ads uh, that supposedly, you know, swung the election, most of them are not even about the election. They're a bunch of juvenile memes like Buff Bernie and Jesus arm wrestling and all this other stuff. Uh, but yet we're supposed to believe that that somehow impacts Americans and sows discord. Hillary Clinton even said that it convinced black people not to vote for her in Michigan. So it's just like the it's the it's US elites who are the ones who are spreading misinformation and, and undermining confidence in our democracy. Uh, and it's also turned, you know, liberals not that some liberals weren't already this way, but it's turned many more liberals into McCarthyites where, you know, everything Great. is the fault of Russia yeah. and you know, uh, tensions with Russia are encouraged to the point where you have in Trump, in reality, a Russia hawk when it comes to his policies. I mean, forget however Trump feels personally about Russia. I mean, it, it's obvious that he he has some, you know, affinity for Vladimir Putin. And he talked about cooperating with Russia when he came into office, and which I think was one of the few positive things ab- about Trump, that plus his openness to peace in North Korea. But Look what the Democrats' response to that is. It's, you know, not only are they opposed to that, but they're basically accusing Trump of being soft on Russia, which means that you're you're challenging a hawkish president from the right. Because in reality, when I say that Trump is hawkish on Russia, I mean that his policies are far more hawkish 
against Russia than even Obama was. And Obama already was a hawk. But Trump has torn up vital nuclear deals. Uh, he's threatening the last remaining nuclear treaty, uh, the New START treaty, which is the last remaining limitation on nuclear stockpiles of the U.S. and Russia. He um, is trying to overthrow Russia's ally, Venezuela. He is uh, trying to stop construction of a really important gas pipeline between Russia and, and Germany. Um, he has increased U.S. military war games on Russia's borders. He got NATO to spend more money on the military. Uh, he sent weapons to Ukraine that Obama refused to do because Obama didn't want to arm neo-Nazis and further inflame a proxy war that his administration basically started in Ukraine. So you have Trump in reality being a dangerous anti-Russia hawk. And what are Democrats doing? They're encouraging him to be even more hawkish by accusing him of being too soft. So it's like, what this has done for democracy and also just for the 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 prospects of like our planet surviving has right. just been it's 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 scary it's it it's it's genuinely scary i mean this whole interview so far this conversation has exposed um really what this entire narrative has been about which is to deflect and distract from the real issues that we should be covering uh within media and I want to talk uh, about Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and how uh, I know that Assange hasn't been in the media lately, uh, but you at the Gray Zone, um, not you specifically, but at the Gray Zone, you guys recently um, uncovered a lot of, you know, this like spying <laughs> operation taking place by the CIA on Julian Assange. Um, but how is Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, uh, how did they play a role in, you know, the media attacking independent journalism and uh, targeting like organizations like the Gray Zone, Mint Press. I mean, we were targeted right after the 2016 election and suppression, um, putting us on like these blacklists of like Russian bots um, because we were sourcing a lot of these leaks that were coming out of WikiLeaks showing Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, corruption within the Hillary Clinton campaign. So how has WikiLeaks and Assange <laughs> played a role um in this whole narrative of Russiagate? Well, I mean, this is a um, example of how Russiagate has pushed liberal culture to the right. So, you know, there was a time when WikiLeaks was, you know, they weren't celebrated fully. They were, they've always been attacked. But there was a recognition that they had published some important stuff, you know, especially the Iraq war logs. And, you know, those were very damning for the Bush administration. And there was, you know, WikiLeaks was cited often in liberal media and, and it even partnered with media outlets because it's it's what it revealed was just so explosive. But since 2016, there's been this effort to blame Assange for Trump's victory. I do think that the emails that were released were embarrassing for Hillary Clinton. I don't think they were like particularly explosive. I mean, they they showed how the DNC was biased against Bernie Sanders, but everybody already kind of knew that. And they also showed that Hillary Clinton was saying one thing in public, but then saying another thing privately to Wall Street, which people also already kind of knew anyway. So it's not as if I think you can even make the case that these emails were like that bombshell that they swung an election. But let's say they had an impact. I mean, they, I'm sure they, they influenced you know, some voters. Um, but this was used to basically you know, blame WikiLeaks entirely for Trump, which is just pretty ridiculous. Um, and then further basically criminalize and taint everything that WikiLeaks does, which is 
expose the secrets of the powerful, not just Democrats, but, but Republicans too. Um, and you've seen that. You've seen this huge campaign against Assange and this effort to portray what WikiLeaks does as really being in the service of Russia. And who's picked up on that? But, you know, the far right uh, U.S. Secretary of State and before that CIA director, Mike Pompeo, who in his first address as CIA director called for a campaign against Assange. And there's been no pushback on that whatsoever because from liberals, from liberal elites, because they've become involved in the campaign against Assange because they also don't like having the secrets of the powerful revealed because they are the because they are the powerful. And so, you know, now you have Max Lumenthal at the Gray Zone coming out with this explosive report, which, you know, reveals how the CIA spied on Assange and the Ecuadorian embassy. They, they, they installed a secret surveillance system that allowed them to film him. They harassed and targeted journalists, Assange's family, his friends, uh, other journalists. Um, and they did this in collusion with the firm of Trump mega donor Sheldon Adelson uh, because it was his security company that acted as a go-between between uh, the CIA and the Spanish security firm that conducted the monitoring inside the embassy. So this is a huge scandal, and Max goes through all the details, but yet it gets no outrage whatsoever because Democrats are on board with targeting Assange. Well, he's and been dehumanized for so long. He, he's been totally dehumanized. And, and and by the way, dehumanized citing material that comes now now we know directly from the CIA. Because okay. some yeah. of some of the some of the surveillance, you know, some some of the surveillance footage and details of it have come from this Spanish firm that was actually spying on Assange on the CIA's behalf. So you have the media literally publishing CIA propaganda. And the irony of it is that all this was going on, you know, the working CIA working with Sheldon Adelson and sabotaging Assange. While all this was happening, what were MSNBC and CNN and, you know, New York Times and Washington Post pundits doing? They were confidently speculating that there really was a secret WikiLeaks Trump conspiracy and that like Roger Stone and Randy Credico was the back channel. And they're still doing that. When in reality, what, what was actually happening? Well, the Trump administration was spying on Assange, trying to undermine his asylum and doing so in collusion, not not with a Russian oligarch, but with an American oligarch, Sheldon Adelson. And it's it just shows just how not just how stupid Russiagate is, but how toxic it is, because it incentivizes this push to the right where when when the Trump administration in reality is doing something so brazen and um um, uh, immoral as spying on Julian Assange, now Russiagate incentivizes liberals to look away because it undermines this convenient narrative, this fantasy that they've latched onto that Trump and WikiLeaks are actually secretly in cahoots. Well, and everything leads back to these intelligence agencies, right? These very corrupt intelligence agencies, uh, including um, Robert Mueller. I can never pronounce his last name, Mueller. <laughs> um, he you know, if we look at even his background in terms of like his investigation and leading like the anthrax investigations, there was so much corruption and so many agendas at play and conflict of interest at play. Talk to me about the trust in intelligence and how we're, like you said, you know, we're, you know, the liberal left is being moved to the right to trust the establishment. Um, where does the, where is the intelligence agencies today? Where, where do they stand? 
Well, yeah, this has been another huge um, function of Russiagate, which is to um, push liberals into worshiping national security state officials instead of being skeptical of them and, you know, taking our eyes off of all the ways these people actually undermine our security and undermine, you know, a, a healthy society. So take Mueller. I mean, Mueller, his career includes going before Congress and helping the Bush administration peddle the Iraqi WMD scam. Uh, he, after 9-11, he oversaw the rounding up of hundreds of uh, Muslim immigrants and putting them in basically detention camps. Um, he gutted uh, the number of financial prosecutors and agents investigating Wall Street um, after 9-11, which meant that when the financial crash happened in 2007, 2008, the FBI had almost no one left to be able to investigate this stuff. And I think he plays a very overlooked role in why there was so little prosecutions because simply so many agents were moved over to terrorism after 9-11 and were no longer looking at Wall Street. So you can, you know, and then there's his handling of the anthrax investigation too. So this guy has a terrible career, but yet all of a sudden he becomes the symbol of anti-Trump resistance after, after 2016. It's like, you know, and, you know, to underscore just how right wing that is, I mean, um, during Mueller's testimony in July 2019, which, by the way, exposed just how what a disaster it was to rely on him as the to bring Trump down, because in reality, he seemed to have very little awareness of his own investigation and humiliated himself and humiliated the Russia Gators. But he also there's a moment where he's asked, do you agree with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo when he calls WikiLeaks a hostile non-state intelligence service. And Mueller, without hesitating, said yes. So it was so striking that the symbol of the anti-Trump resistance is in total lockstep with the Trump administration in demonizing a publisher who wants to expose the crimes of the powerful. I mean, to really, to me, to me, that moment said it all there. And that's been the function here. John Brennan, you know, you have him. He, he spied on the Senate when he was investigating torture he then lied about it to cover it up. He was there uh, when the CIA was, uh, you know, doing the Iraqi WMD scam. He uh, played a key role in the U.S. assassination program. Played a critical role in the proxy war in Syria. But yeah, what happens to him? He becomes a liberal hero, and now he's a commentator on MSNBC, which is one whole other aspect of this, where the media just abandoned any sense of independence and literally had, you know, a, a parade of intelligence officials acting as its analysts, which is crazy enough to begin with. But what makes it even more crazy is not, not, not only are they analyzing the news, which is bad enough in itself. Now they're analyzing news that they themselves are responsible for. So they're basically covering themselves. So right. it's like it really has been dystopian. But, you know, that's what happens when you cling on to a, a Cold War chauvinistic conspiracy theory as your means of resisting Donald Trump. Well, these are basically like Bush era neocons, Bush era racists, Bush era like extremists, right? They're just back out in the open and now they're being um, put on a pedestal by Democrats. I mean, the way you described it was so accurate. Um, you know, I want to talk about, I want to go back to the Russian troll farms and Facebook ads. Um, I saw an interview with you on Jimmy Dore, and I just was literally dying laughing when you were describing these um, Russian troll farms and Facebook ads. How do they even compare on, you know, to more serious foreign influence 
cam- you know, foreign influence campaigns on social media by countries like, you know, Saudi Arabia or Israel? Well, they don't compare. I mean, first of all, I think to begin with the panic about social media ads and retweets and bots has been vastly overblown. I, I see it all as kind of like it's fear mongering. Uh, to me, the much more you know dangerous propaganda is the propaganda we get every day from our own media, uh, and and um, in, in the stories when we hear from our intelligence officials and and politicians. But look, taking taking it seriously for a second, all you have to do is look at the content of the Russian troll farm and what they put out. Um, the Senate's own studies on this show that only a small percentage of the Russian social media ads were even about the 2016 election. Uh, most of the content had nothing to do with the election, and most of it was silly memes. Like you know, I mentioned one earlier, Buff Bernie, and there's an ad for a fake Jesus masturbation help hotline where if you're having, it, it's it's aimed at people with masturbation issues, and it, there's a line where you see Jesus. There's a picture where you see Jesus consoling a young man, and it says, "If you're ha- if you're having problems with masturbation, reach out to Jesus, and we'll beat it together." And we're supposed to believe that this somehow duped Americans into voting for Donald Trump. I mean, it's a joke. It's it, it's laughable. And what is amazing is that the industry that profits off of RussiaGate and is paid to peddle it, they have to take all this and turn this into something serious. So, you know, that Jesus hotline ad is literally it's listed inside the Senate report on this, which was done by this firm called New Knowledge. And New Knowledge, in its report, and this has the Senate's imprint, lists that masturbation hotline ad as an example of the Russians trying to exploit American vulnerabilities <laughs> and find recruits. It's 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 it's, it's a parody. It, right. it, it's a parody. But this is there was so much propaganda put into convincing us that this was a serious Russian propaganda operation. By the way, Mueller disingenuously suggested without outright saying it because he couldn't but he strongly suggested that this russian troll farm was a part of a russian government propaganda campaign to elect trump but he had to admit in court that actually there was no connection at all that he could find between the the russian troll farm and the russian government and ultimately he ended up recently his prosecutors recently abandoned their case against the troll farm after the troll farm challenged it in court and laughably the uh, DOJ uh, prosecutor said that, you know, if they proceeded with the case, that the, that the, the, the discovery process would jeopardize national security because this troll farm was fighting back and actually trying to get the evidence that that Mueller's prosecutors had against them. And the Mueller team said rather than going ahead with that, going to trial, they were going to drop the case because it would jeopardize national security, which is just so laughable. And it shows just how baseless this case was and how it was a part of an effort not to go after anything real or any real threat, but to present this narrative of this, you know, Russian enemy trying to undermine our democracy. And so it was all entirely an exercise in fear mongering and propaganda. And at least among liberals, it was pretty successful. And Aaron, you have obviously been covering this for a long time since this whole Russiagate nonsense has erupted. And for independent journalists and watchdog journalists in particular, it almost feels like we're talking to a wall in terms of like presenting this evidence and saying, this is all nonsense, you know, question more, don't believe what the establishment is saying. Even when we present evidence, like you are, you have been doing a really fantastic job of presenting evidence, following the hearings, um, dissecting these things, pointing out 
how in public these people are saying one thing, but behind, you know, in these Senate hearings or con congressional hearings, there's complete, com they're saying something completely different. Yet most people still believe, they still believe <laughs> about this collusion. So what do we, how do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Well, look, we can't control much beyond what we own. Like we can't control really anything beyond what we do ourselves. So all we can do is do our best to try to reach people. And, you know, we're, especially those of us in alternative independent media, we're up against a giant machine, you know, far bigger than anything um, that, that we'll ever be a part of. Um, and so, but, you know, so all we can do is do our best and hope that people find it and fight back against, you know, smear campaigns and censorship and censorship attempts and everything else that is done to try to, to try to marginalize this. And, you know, with progressives and, you know, I, I hope there's a lesson learned here, which is that, I mean, a lot of people, not just elite liberals, but, you know, a lot of progressives and progressive media outlets too got swept up in this. And the reason to me is pretty obvious. It's not because, you know, everybody is corrupt like, you know, DNC elites are, but because this was a comforting narrative for many people. This was presented to us as the thing that was going to not just explain Trump's victory, but also, but also reverse it. It would bring Trump down. And for many people, that was understandably appealing. But the lesson is, I think, for people is that, you know, we can't get swept up in things just because they're comforting. And also, I think progressives really have to think about how this was actually not, you know, as I alluded to earlier, this was not just something that was done to resist Trump in a false way. It was also done to uh, help avoid becoming, on the Democratic side, a genuine progressive force, which is what should have happened after 2016. So, you know, there could be a real alternative to Trump and no, us no longer, you know, relying on neoliberal centrists is personified by Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. And so for so per, for the progressives who got swept up in pushing Russiagate, they actually got swept up in something that was being used to undermine what they what they really believe in. And you know, we saw that come to fruition when as we talked about earlier, Bernie Sanders got Russiagated on the as he was uh, as he was surging on the eve of Nevada shortly before Super Tuesday. I mean, there's a reason why that happens, because Bernie Sanders represented a threat to the wing of the party behind Russiagate and who used Russiagate to protect its own power. And so there's hopefully a lesson there that progressives should be wary of narratives that, that might look convenient, but are actually ultimately used for toxic reasons, including <laughs> being used to, to destroy progressives, as Russiagate has actually been pretty effective in, because it's four years later and who is our nominee for the Democrats? It's Joe Biden from the Hillary Clinton wing of Joe the party. Joe Biden, I know. Yeah, and and there's been no no discussion about what led to Trump's victory. It's all been about Russia, and that is an achievement of the Russia Gators. It, it really is. That's exactly what I think they intended, and they succeeded in that respect. And it's our job as progressives, for those of us who can define ourselves that way, to no longer tolerate that. Well, and it goes for the same, as you mentioned, you know, for any sort of narrative that's being presented by the media, whether it's war narratives, social justice issues, um, you know, interventions. I know you've done a lot of coverage about uh, Syria and some of the intelligence <laughs> that have come out about like chemical weapons attack. And we'll leave that conversation for another day. 
But we do have to question more. We do have to um, hold our elected officials and our media accountable. The media that we have today does not represent we the people anymore. It's owned and managed by the very entities that the media should actually be holding accountable. Um, thank you, Aaron, for joining us today. You can find Aaron's reporting about Russiagate at The Gray Zone and at The Nation. That's a wrap for today's Mintcast. This program is 100% listener supported. You can join the hundreds of financial supporters and sponsors who make this show possible by becoming a member on our Patreon page. We'll see you next week.